Philippians chapter 11 together. We'll be concentrating today on verses 6 through 11. If you are a visitor, I'd like to welcome you. Thank you for being with us. We've been walking through the book of Romans for the last 18 months, and we are now coming towards the end of the first portion. That would be chapters 1 through 11. Chapters 1 through 11 are all theological. Chapters 12 to 16 are practical. We have the gospel will transform your life. That idea is developed in chapters 1 through 11. And then the practical living, what your life should look like, because the gospel has transformed your life, that will then be flowing out in chapters 12 to 16. I want to take just a moment this morning and walk back through what are some of the things that we have seen in the book of Romans. I'll start right back at the beginning in chapter 1 and verse 16. You might remember this as our theme verse for the book, and it's speaking of the gospel. This is Romans chapter 1 and verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the gospel of Christ, for it is Christ alone who will save you from your sin. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. The gospel simply, I am a sinner condemned before God and His wrath abides upon my sin. My sin separates me from a holy God. I will never be right with Him apart from Him providing the sacrifice. So He sent Jesus to be my propitiation. That's Romans chapter 3. The gift that turns away wrath. He sent Jesus to be the one who would take my sin upon Himself, if we know, 2 Corinthians 5.21, God has made Him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Then in chapter 4, Romans chapter 4, we saw that it is by faith alone that we are saved. God desires that we would put our trust in Jesus. There's nothing that we can bring that will make us right with God. That idea... From Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, the, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God to salvation. That is then further expanded in Romans 1 and verse 17. For therein, in the gospel, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, quoting Habakkuk 2 verse 4, the just shall live by faith. Please put out of your mind any kind of idea that says that that verse means that if I have enough faith, then I will become rich. That's not what it says at all. This is talking about really living. So much more to life than financial gain. Really living. For therein, in the gospel, is the righteousness of God revealed in your life. That's called your sanctification. Your life will be changed. You'll be transformed from one degree of glory to the next, from faith to faith, as it is written, the just, those who have been saved and made righteous with God, the just will really live by faith. And that happens as we see Romans chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8. Chapter 5 is a reminder that if you're in Christ, you're different, you're changed. Chapter 6 and chapter 7 is a reminder that yes, I'm changed and I'm in Christ, but man alive, I still sin. And this life that I'm still living in the flesh, I need Christ to be the one who's living in me. 
So then he comes to the question at chapter 7 and verse 24. He makes this question, Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Continually I'm sinning. I need someone to redeem me. I need someone to change me. And the answer is then found in chapter 7 and verse 25. I thank God through the Lord Jesus Christ. I am changed because of Jesus. So then, chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. This is a very important concept for believers. If you have put your trust in Jesus, the gospel of Christ, the power of God to your salvation as you trust Him from one degree of glory to the next, your faith grows, your life is changed, you are sanctified, and then you have no condemnation. We see throughout chapter 8 the promise that God is using all things for your good, even those things that seem like they would be painful and causing you to groan. There's a question that he asks in chapter 8, in verse number 32, uh, 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he lists seven terrible things like famine and the sword. Can any of these separate us from the love of Christ? And the answer is found in verse number 37. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. And then he goes to list ten most terrible things you could ever think of. Things that are in the principalities and powers world that does not have the ability to separate you from the love of Christ. Can we be separated? Absolutely not. And then that brings us into chapter 9. Because if you are thinking as you're reading and you're listening, you're going to be asking a question. Can anything separate us from the love of Christ? And the answer is no, nothing can separate us from God. Nothing, absolutely nothing. And if you've got your thinking caps on, you will ask this question. But what about Israel? Because all throughout the Old Testament, for a couple of thousand years, the people of Israel had been God's chosen people. And it seems like when we come into the New Testament, God brings salvation to the Gentiles. That's us, by the way. God brings us salvation. And you might think, if nothing separates us from the love of God, what about Israel? Did God give His back to them? Has He forgotten His promises to them? And we walked through chapter 9 and we saw several things that should make your heart sing. Things like God always keeps His promises. You see that in verse 6. Not as though the Word of God has taken none effect. Oh, God always keeps His promises. Friend, remember that if God broke His promises to Israel, He can break His promises to you. So Satan will do his absolute dead best to try to stop God's promises from coming true. God will always keep His promises. We also saw that God is the righteous sovereign. They say that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. There is only one exemption to that statement. That's God Almighty. For He will never be corrupted and He does have all absolute power. It is against His very nature for Him to sin at all. Therefore, He is the righteous sovereign. And because of that, He has the right to make promises to whomsoever He wills to make promises. 
And you might remember that from chapter 9 and verse 15. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. He's always right, and he has every right to choose to whom he will give his promises. Then we saw in verses 31 and 32 that God placed Jesus as a stumbling block before Israel. Answering the question, what about Israel? It was not God who turned His back on Israel. It was Israel who turned their back on God. Look at chapter 9 and verse 31. Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore, or in other words, words, why? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. In other words... They wanted to bring their own righteousness before God. They wanted to say, hey God, look at, I can fulfill the law. I can do all of the things of the law. See God, how righteous we are. Oh, be careful friend, you'll never bring your righteousness before God. It will not work. It's impossible. Stop and think with me. Go all the way back to the very beginning. Adam, Eve, their sons. Cain and Abel. You remember that? God said, bring me a sacrifice of an animal. And what did Cain say? God, I've got a better idea. I'll bring you the best I've got. My vegetables look much better than his sheep. So let me bring you my vegetables. And God says, hang on a second. You don't get to choose how you come to me. God said, you come to me, you come to me the way that I tell you to come to me. You don't bring your own goodness before him. It's Not possible. Listen, all roads do not lead to God. Jesus very clearly said it in John 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. You can only come to the Father through Jesus. That's the only way. It is impossible to come any other way. And friend, I'll be honest, I wish, I wish, because I love people, I wish there were other ways. But if I'm going to be faithful to the Word of God, I have to admit... His way is always right. He is holy in all of His ways. And then we saw in chapter 10 that salvation is oh so very easy. Instead of me trying to work my way through and bring my righteousness before God, it says in verse number 6, the righteousness which is of faith speaks on this wise. What does it say? Verse 8, it says this, the word is nigh thee, it's even in your mouth, it's in your heart that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God has raised Him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Oh, so easy to come to Him. And yet, we make it so complicated. I need to do this one and that one and this one. And He says, just, it's right there. It's on the tip of your tongue. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. Just trust Me. Oh, so easy is salvation. And He offers Himself to us. He offered Himself to Israel and they turned away. You can see that in verse 21, chapter 10 and verse 21. But to Israel, He says, All day long I've stretched forth My hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. His arms, you can see the picture. God's arms are stretched out. He has not cast away Israel. His promises still will be fulfilled. And yet they've turned away. Our passage for today is in verse 6. You'll draw your attention down to verse 6 and 7. Verse 6, And if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. Grace and works, friend, are mutually exclusive. 
You don't come before God with half your works and expect Him to top up the rest with His grace. No, you get all of His grace and none of your works. You say, but pastor, aren't I supposed to be a good person? Yes, you are supposed to be a good person, but that will happen as a result of Him changing you. Not as you change yourself and bring that goodness before Him so that He will accept it, because He'll never accept it. Oh, nothing in my hand I bring, but simply to the cross I cling. Oh, do not try to bring anything before Him. Verse 7 now. What then? Israel has not obtained that which he seeketh for. You remember what he was seeking for. That was chapter 9 and verse 31. Israel was following after the law of righteousness, and they have not attained the law of righteousness, because they sought it not by faith. The very thing they wanted, they could not get. See it in verse 7. Israel has not obtained that which he seeketh for, but, these are important words, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. See verse 8, it has a parenthesis. When we read in grammar, you can take the parentheses out and continue the sentence. So if you have a King James Bible, you'll notice that at the end of verse number 7, there is no punctuation. That thought continues on in verse 8. So you can follow along. We'll remove the parentheses from verse 8, and you'll see the flow of the sentence. Look at verse 7. What then? Israel has not obtained what he seeketh for, but the election has obtained it, and the rest were, skip the parentheses, they were blinded unto this day. That's what the statement makes. So here we have in this sentence a number of thoughts that I want to just bring out. Israel has not obtained what he seeks for. In other words, Israel has not gotten that righteousness. They've not gotten right with God. They wanted it, but they did not want it in the way that God wanted it. God wanted it, you trust Jesus and you become right with me. They did not want to trust Jesus. Instead, you might remember their words, crucify him crucify Him, and turn their backs upon Him. And then in verse 7 continues on, but the election has obtained it. This election in verse 7 can be traced back to the election of verse 5. You might remember verse 5 last week. God always keeps a remnant, and His remnant is according to the election of His grace. We don't get to say, hey, look at me and how great I am because God chose me. No, it was His grace that He chose us. He chooses us, and then in verse 7 we see that because of His choosing, we get what they were seeking for, namely, right with God. I want to take just a moment here and talk about this theology of election. There's a lot of confusion around it. It is hotly debated among theologians. I want to just point out something that's very important for us as believers. If you've been with us for a number of weeks or years, then you would know my heart is to be following carefully through what Scripture says. I don't know what your background is, but perhaps this might be of help to you. Remember what God said in Romans 9 and verse 18. He will have mercy on whom He will have mercy, and whom He wills, He hardens. I want you to get this statement. God elects according to his foreknowledge. God elects according to His foreknowledge. But let me walk through this real quickly. God electing, and when 
the scripture says God elects, it means that he chose you. So if you're a believer, you've put your trust in Christ, guess what? While you weren't even looking, God chose you. In fact, he did that before the foundation of the world. That is a great truth. Sadly, there are some who would say, well, if that, if that means that God chose some, that means that he did not choose others. And therefore, it must mean that he made or created some people just simply so that they would go to hell. That flies in the face of Romans 10 and verse 13, which says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is a problem. So how do we reconcile this problem? And it comes back to the statement, God elects according to His foreknowledge. I'll give you some other scriptures that say this. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2, Peter speaking of himself makes this statement. He says, I was elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So you see this going together. In fact, you'll notice it throughout the scriptures. Whenever you come across election, you always see foreknowledge. So God knew beforehand... And He knew that you would choose Him. That's long before you were ever born, long before Adam ever fell in sin, before the foundation of the world, before God said, let there be light, God already knew where your heart would be, and He said, I'll take that one, I'm going to elect them, I'm going to choose them, I will foreordain them, so that, Romans 8.29's words, you can be conformed to the image of His Son. There's a whole process there. He says, I'm going to call that one. They're going to respond. But Peter makes the statement, I was chosen, I was elected before, according to the foreknowledge of God. Paul makes that same statement in Romans 8 and verse 29. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. I'll give you an example of this from the Old Testament. We spoke of this when we were in Romans chapter 9. It was Pharaoh. You remember Pharaoh. Scripture says, hardened his heart. Between Exodus 7 and Exodus 14, the phrase, hardened his heart, appears again and again and again. And I think that Pharaoh is a great example for us to understand, elect according to the foreknowledge. Here's what I mean by that. When you look through Exodus chapter 7 to chapter 14, the phrase, hardened his heart, the first four times it shows up, it shows up as God saying, Pharaoh will harden his heart. That's prophetic. So God says to Moses, I want you to go tell him, let my people go, but he's going to harden his heart. God says that four times before Moses ever steps foot into the palace. Moses comes in, says, let God's people go. And the next eight times that you see the phrase, it's Pharaoh himself hardens his heart. So notice the first four, God calls it prophetically, the next eight, Pharaoh does it himself. And then the next seven after that, it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. You see this? Elect according to the foreknowledge of God. God knew that he would harden his heart. He did it, and then God further hardened his heart. Can I just say this, friend? Be very careful. Be very careful. Don't harden your heart against God, for the day may come when He says, I've given you enough opportunity, here I am, harden your heart for you. I might say Pharaoh had opportunity all the way to the Red Sea, at which point he just continued to harden his heart. And then Big Head followed the nation of Israel right down into the middle of a miracle. 
Who thinks they have the right to do that? God hardened his heart. This chapter also ties election together with foreknowledge. You see election in verse 2. Slide your eyes up to verse... uh, Sorry, in verse 7. Slide your eyes up to verse 2 now and see foreknowledge there. God hath not cast away His people which He foreknew. You see, God's election is tied directly to His foreknowledge. He knew before the foundation of the world, therefore He chose. And brothers and sisters, I might say it like this. On one side, it's as if we see on one side of the door of salvation. We come to the door and across the top it says, whosoever wills. And we say, yes, Jesus, you are magnificent. We walk through. When we come to the other side, we turn around and we look back at the door and we see, he chose me before the foundation of the world. Well, this is a great truth, theological truth that the Scripture speaks of here. Look at verse 7 again. We'll slide into the next thought for this passage. Verse 7 The election has obtained it, and the rest were blinded unto this day. Speaking of Israel, the rest were blinded. You know what blinded means, right? Can't see. And here the people, given opportunity, hardened their hearts, and now they're blinded. And I might ask this question, who blinded them? And every single one of us, without reading the text, every single one of us would think, well, it must have been Satan who blinded them, for Satan is the one who does this. You might remember 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. If our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. And then in verse 4, it continues to unpack who is doing the hiding. In verse 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. You see, Satan is actively, the God of this world, is actively blinding people to the light of the glorious gospel of Christ. Yes, Satan is actively blinding people, even to today. So if a person has not heard the gospel, Satan is the one who is the agent that's keeping the gospel from coming to them. Friend, if you're here today and you're not a believer, I'm going to tell you right now, Satan does not want you to hear the gospel. He'll do everything that he can to keep you from hearing the gospel. He'll create, you come to church, he'll create every distraction he can. You were here last Sunday, you might remember some of those. Power on, power off. Ice coming out of an air conditioner. Satan will do everything he can to keep you from hearing the gospel. That is Satan actively blinding people who have not seen the gospel, heard the gospel. So then my question comes to this. Who blinded Israel? And the answer is found in verse 8. Look at verse 8. According as it is written, God hath given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear. The question is, who blinded Israel? And the answer, according to verse 8, is God did. You see, God gave them opportunity after opportunity, gave them chance after chance, yes, sent the many prophets, they slew the prophets, so God sent His only begotten Son, and they crucified Him as well. You see, God gave them many opportunities, and they rejected Him. So then God said, fine, you've hardened your heart enough times, I'll now harden your heart also. Oh friend, that's a terrifying thought. 
for God blinded Israel. I want you to grab this. If you're writing things down this morning, God further blinds those who reject Him. God further blinds those who reject Him. You have the opportunity to come to Him in faith. It's so easy. On your mouth, and your heart, all you have to do is trust Him. Confess and believe. But if you reject, He will further blind those who reject Him. These Old Testament references over and over, you see it in verse 8, as it is written. And then in verse 9, and David saith, that's Deuteronomy 29, Isaiah 29, Psalm 69. In fact, from chapter 9 until chapter 11, there's 32 Old Testament references, perhaps the greatest concentration of Old Testament references in all of the New Testament. Why is that? Because Paul's doing his very best to try to get Israel's attention. Israel, listen, you know the Old Testament. You know those Scriptures, Israel. Don't turn your back on Jesus. And he gives reference after reference, and here we'll see another one. Look at verse 9. David says, Psalm 69, verses 22 and 23. David says, Let their table be made a snare, a trap, and a stumbling block, and a recompense unto them. Let their eyes be darkened that they may not see, and bow down their back always. Not just blinded, but trapped. Let their table be made a snare and a trap. The table, just think with me, friend. A table is supposed to be the place of comfort and nourishment. You come to the table with the family. Somebody's prepared a meal. We come to the table to enjoy our time together with one another. Listen, when you come together as a family and sit around the table and somebody brings a disagreement or an argument to the table, as dad, you look at them and say, leave the table, this is not the place for that. The table is the place for comfort and nourishment. And God says, you want to reject me? I'll blind you. And then, on top of it, I'll turn your table into a snare. You know what a snare is, right? I know that we live in the city and we don't do this as often as those who live as subsistence farmers. But I lived in Koriranga long enough to know what a snare is. And you go out into the bush and you put the snare on the tree branch and you hope that the couple comes along. And that couple is working his way along the tree branch because he sees the fruit out at the end. And he has no idea that on his way to the table, there's a snare. And the snare gets him, and the harder he tries to get away, the tighter it gets. That's a snare. And God says, you reject me, I'll blind you. I've given you opportunity. Don't reject me. You reject me, I'll take your table and turn it into a snare, into a trap. It will be a thing that you don't want anymore. You see, for the greatest treasure of your heart should be Jesus Christ. Not the table. Not your eyesight. Jesus should be the treasure of your heart. Darkened eyes, bent backs. You see it in verse 10. Their eyes will be darkened. They may not see and bow down their back always. You get this image of a person whose back is bent over. Their eyes are darkened. They can't even look up to see His goodness. 
You see, he's really driving home a point here. If you harden your heart against God, He will harden your heart back against Him. You think it'll be you that's doing it. Your table is a snare. Be careful, friend. Let's see verse 11, because God did not leave Israel there. Say then, and by the way, verse 11 changes tone. From verse 11 to the end of the chapter, there is hope. We'll only see verse 11 and some sporadic verses. Look at verse 11. Say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. But rather through their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. They stumbled, but it was not permanent. Oh, I'm so thankful. Israel, they stumbled. Remember what they stumbled over, right? Jesus, the stumbling block, because they thought we will bring our goodness, and God said, here's Jesus, you need Jesus as your goodness, and they stumbled across that. But it was not God putting stumbling block Jesus in front of them to knock them down and put them down forever. No, it was so that they would trip along their way, and then there's also an added benefit in the middle of this. Look at it right after God forbid, but rather through their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles. Just let that soak in, friend. Could you imagine if they had not stumbled? Where would we be? To my knowledge, we don't have a single Jewish person in here. We're all Gentiles. We should be glad that they tripped. We should be going, yes, praise Jesus. We get an opportunity. So through their fall, the Gentiles get an opportunity and God turns His goodness and manifold blessings upon you and I as Gentiles as He draws us to be His children. And then that action, in that action, we see something further happen. At the end of verse 11, for to provoke them to jealousy. So as they stumble and they look across and see, the Gentiles are now the people of God. The church is the people of God. What about us? They're provoked to jealousy. Maybe if you've had more than one child, you will understand this idea. If you have more than one, if you only have one, you've just you capsized him all get a blessing and go. But if you've got two, they know the feeling. You give one little gift to this child, the other one is over on the side. Now me. You can't even hide it. You try and hide, you know what that other one's going to do? Today I got ice cream. And the other one, not me. That's what's going on here. God says, I put Jesus in front of the Jewish people. They didn't accept Him. They rejected Him. I'm blinding them right now. I'm bending over their backs. I'm making their table a snare. And I'm giving all kinds of great blessings Manifold blessings from heaven upon the Gentile people so that these Jewish people who have their backs bent over and their eyes blinded, they will see the blessings that I've poured out upon the Gentile people and they will become jealous. Because God's not done with them. Look at verse 26. You see, He has a plan. This is still yet prophetic. It will come one day. Verse 26. And so... All Israel shall be saved. There's coming a day when the nation of Israel will return to Him. Give us a couple of weeks and we'll come to that and we will expound on that much more thoroughly. But let it be known, God has not turned His back on Israel. 
He has always kept a remnant until this day, and He has done that by the election of His grace. And there's coming a day when all of Israel as a nation will return, and they will follow Him, and they will be His people. He has made this promise, and He has a purpose now for blinding them. And His purposes are so much higher than ours. Look at verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments, and His ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been His counselor, or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again, for of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So his riches of his wisdom and his knowledge are unsearchable. You will never plumb the depths of his wisdom and his knowledge. Oh, his foreknowledge that we spoke of this morning, His foreknowledge that predates even the creation, His foreknowledge for His ability to be able to look down through all of the ages and to choose you long before you ever chose Him. He could do that with His foreknowledge and then with His knowledge to know of every single thought that you ever had and all of the depths of your sin that would separate you from Him so that He would send Jesus to the cross and with His knowledge place every single one of those sins upon His Son. So that of Him and through Him and by Him all things would consist and He would receive all of the glory. Oh, notice the words in verse 34. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Answer, nobody. You'll never know the mind of the Lord. Who will be His counselor? Who will ever stand before God and say, God, let me tell you how it's done? No. And then in verse 35, who has first given to Him, and it will be recompensed unto Him again. Nobody. You will never put God in your debt. Oh, it is all of His grace. Oh, the depth of the wisdom and knowledge of God. So do not exalt yourself. Oh, how glorious are His ways, and they are way beyond past finding out. Friend, if it was up to me, I would have done things very differently from God. Adam, sins in the garden, it's up to me, I'm done. With the foreknowledge to see how wicked man would become in all of his ways, watch it. Adam, I'll start over. That's my ways. But if I did that, or if God did that, there's no grace. There's no need for Jesus. And by the way, grace makes God look so wonderful. You say, why did God let Adam continue on living? Because it made God look even better. His ways are past finding out. Maybe you would have done it differently. Maybe you would have said, you know what, I think that it should work like this. You broke it, you pay for it. So you sin, pay off your sins. Outweigh them with your good deeds. And if you can't get that done in this lifetime, do it in hell too, and maybe one day I'll let you out. And if you went down that road, or if God went down that road, 
He would not be able to display His goodness and His grace. As He places Christ upon a cross and takes all the sin that you and I could never pay for and puts it upon Jesus. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. To everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Father, I pray that in these next few moments as we reflect upon our own lives, Lord, I pray that if there be some among us who have never put their trust in the Lord Jesus, I pray that today would be the day that they would do that. For the word of faith is nigh them, even in their mouth, even in their heart. So Lord, I pray that you would take these next few moments to draw us to yourself. Could I ask you to stand with me this morning? Heads bowed and eyes closed. I'm going to give a time of invitation, and I'd love to just meet you here at the front. If you've never put your trust in the Lord Jesus, could I invite you to come? I'll have somebody meet off to the side with you, talk with you about how you can put your trust in the Lord Jesus. Standing all over the house and with our heads bowed and eyes closed, could I invite you to come? The altar's open. Perhaps you're here and you're a believer, a pastor. So thankful that the Lord Jesus died on the cross for my sins. There's days when I forget it and I live like a sinner. If you'd like to come, the altar's open. You're welcome to come. Kneel around the altar. Thank God for His goodness in your life. Thank God for the reminder that your life will be different. If you'd like to come, you're welcome. Come. you've never put your trust in the Lord Jesus, could I ask you to come? I'd love to show you from the Scripture how you can be saved. I'm going to pray in a moment, but I might just make one statement. If you'd like to talk to somebody and you're not sure that you're right with God, please make a point of seeing somebody and talking to them about it. Please don't reject Him. Never want it said of my life that God blinded me because I rejected Him. Father, Thank you for your grace upon us. Thank you for your goodness in sending Jesus to the cross on our behalf. As we see even today, you never gave up on Israel. You've simply opened the door for us to come to you. So thank you for your goodness. You are a most glorious God. Pray for my friends, my brothers and sisters this morning. I pray that we would not walk away unchanged, untransformed by the gospel. The power of God unto salvation. The power of God unto sanctification. Thank you for the goodness that you've given us in the gospel. It's your beautiful name I ask it. Amen.
Thank you, guys.